So uh, it's really easy, and Megan has uh, trained these guys really good. <laughs> so before we get started, a um, couple of announcements that I have. Uh, this, I'm getting ready to hold up a piece of clothing, and it's a shirt, and it has the Grace Life logo on it. Let me explain. Even if you don't like this shirt, you are buying... <laughs> A shirt. Starting next week, they will be available in the back, cash or check, $15. Yes, it's overpriced, but all the proceeds go to the Grace Life Student Ministry. So as a matter of fact, we designed this so that it would be $15, thinking that most people will just bring a 20 and say, keep the change. That's really... Buy a shirt, would you, starting next week? All right, thank you very much. So put that back over here. Wipe some sweat off there. It has been a month, I think, since I preached on the life of Joseph. There was some planned outages and there were some unplanned outages. In the last couple of weeks, Megan filled in with about 15 minutes notice. And then Bruce came in and filled in last week because I just was not in the right frame of mind to be able to preach last week. But I'm glad to be back up here now. Thank you for your prayers as I've been recovering. I really appreciate it. But I'm excited about getting back to... <clears throat> you get standing, uh, you get a no, not standing, but you get an ovation for recovering. Everybody should get that, you know? That'd be great. Um, week number 21, the life of Joseph. Surviving in Egypt, for those of you that don't remember, Egypt is a metaphor for the world. And the idea is looking at the story of Joseph and his brothers to figure out ways that we can survive in a world that's frankly tough. And this week, Lesson 21 is called Restoration is Greater Than Revenge. Now, humanly speaking, we love a good revenge story, don't we? Be honest. When the underdog somehow forces justice on his oppressors. Something about revenge is just so awesome. It's emotional. It fires you up. Yeah, you get him. And hope for revenge, and frankly, the build-up to it is very appealing. And why is that? Because as humans, we actually love it when our hands control justice. When our opinion of justice is within our power to enact. However, as stirring and emotional as revenge can be, Restoration is often a more powerful ending, even if we can't see it. Let me tell you a story about revenge in my own life this week. I was about to preach the sermon three weeks ago, but God said, no, I'm going to give you shingles so that you can have this illustration. So that's what happened. So let me explain to you about the dumpster at nightlife. Lisa's laughing. There's a long story about the dumpster at nightlife. Like, what size should we get? I want smaller. Lisa says, no, we need bigger. No, smaller. No, bigger. And so I think she on purpose filled it up extra just so I could get the bigger one later, you know? Because <laughs> I kept paying extra for these pickups. So over the past month or so at, at the new nightlife center, the dumpster's been a big tug of war. But we finally relented, or I finally relented, and we got the bigger three-yard dumpster. It's on wheels. It's great. It was pretty full this week, but we didn't have to get an extra pickup. The dumpsters picked up on Friday mornings at 5.30. 
And I, that's okay. I'm coming back from the gym on Friday morning at 7. I think, I'm going to get there. Nobody's seen the empty dumpster. Nobody would throw anything in there. I'm going to get it back inside the fence before somebody sees it so nobody will throw anything in there. So I get over there on Friday morning, and what do I see in the dumpster? Somebody has filled it up halfway with boxes. I thought, is Lisa Kay already here at 7 o'clock? On? She's, just, she's just trolling me. She just wants, to, she wants a four-yard dumpster. But then I looked closer at the writing. Kitchen, deep fryer, mixer, spices, turbis mugs, measuring cups. That doesn't sound like Lisa. Somebody moved into the apartment next door to the nightlife center and threw their moving boxers in my dumpster 45 minutes after it was emptied. So I start thinking about, how can I get revenge? I can take these boxes out and dump them on their porch and then introduce myself. <laughs> Hi, I'm Joe. I run the Nightlife Center. It's good to see you. Their truck that they were moving with is still there. I could just throw them in the back of the truck. I could send these nice little, you know, passive-aggressive, subtle messages of, this is dumpster justice, baby. I was angry that somebody would do that. I started plotting ways for dumpster revenge. I had lots of great ideas. Then later that day, I was faced with a moral conundrum. I had stuff I needed to throw in someone else's dumpster. I drove up. Oh, you guys, like, you've never dumped stuff in someone else's dumpster. Is that right? <laughs> Pastor Joe, we would never do Yes, you would, and you have. You probably did it to my dumpster before. Oh, I know, Joe. He won't mind. I do mind. Don't do it again. So I dumped something in someone else's dumpster, and I realized, you know what? Short term, it would have been fun to take those boxes out and dump them on them. But now I think it's probably better that I bake a cake and introduce myself. Hi, I'm the neighbor with the empty dumpster anytime. <laughs> Not going to do that. But this week was humbling for me because what it helped me do is help me realize my own depravity when it came to the revenge that I wanted to force on someone else. We do it with driving all the time. Like somebody cuts us off and we want to catch up to them and do something. And then, of course, we cut someone else off. Oops, sorry. You'll have to forgive me. Let's look at the story of Joseph this week. Genesis 45, 1 through 15. What's happened here is Joseph is finally back together with his brothers. They've gone through all these tests and trials and seen what their character is. And last time I preached, for those of you that were here, we talked about Judah. And Judah was willing to give his life for his younger brother, Benjamin. Joseph's full brother. And so Joseph finally sees, man, these guys have been transformed. And Judah really is a good guy now. He's totally different. So they're in the room, and Joseph's had this charade going on for months. It's taken months for this to play out. He's had this charade of he's just a ruler in Egypt. They have no idea Joseph is their brother. Look what happens. <clears throat> then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried. Make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brother. So it's just him and his brothers. He goes, it's me, your brother. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the house of Pharaoh heard it. It's a loud wailing. It's a lot of emotion has been built up over all these years. 25 years and several months of dealing with this. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. They're like, 
oh no, this is Joseph? And they don't, they don't hear his question about Jacob. But they're like, what do we do here now? So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. Okay, it's like walking toward a wasp nest. I don't want to do it. They came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Wow. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not wait. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. This is an amazing story. And like we do at Grace Life, we like to break down each passage in three ways. The history, what about man? What did he do? The theology, what about God? And then the, the personal, what about me? What do I do? Let's talk about the history of this passage. This is a big reveal. And Joseph wasn't really ready for restoration right away, right? This process of testing his brothers and sending them back and forth and seeing what kind of character they have, this has been months. But now Joseph knows his brothers have been changed by God's grace. They are new creations. He has tested them several times, and the evidence of redemption and transformation has shown through clearly, especially with Judah. From returning to the land with the planted money, to not abandoning Benjamin, to Judah's willingness to even die for Benjamin if necessary, it is clear these once disgusting brothers have been transformed by God's power and by God's grace. And now Joseph is at a fork in the road. Does he pursue revenge and justice, which is certainly within his power? Or does he pursue redemption and restoration? And what we see is he is faced with undeniable evidence. It's undeniable. It's a plethora of proof that his brothers have been changed. And so he succumbs to what I call irresistible reconciliation. He cannot continue this facade any longer. Love, emotion, compassion, and forgiveness, yes, forgiveness, have overwhelmed his heart, his mind, and his soul. The gift of faith and trust that Heavenly Dad had given him have brought Joseph to the place where he can now get this abandoned revenge. The overriding desire is no longer justice or some sort of payback. 
But his now overriding desire is reconciliation to become their little brother once again. And he empties the room except for his brothers and himself as he knows his emotions are about to overflow in a volcano of love and affection. And he reveals his identity and immediately asks about his father, Jacob. And then something really amazing happens in this story. Intense tears of joy, sorrow, reconciliation, restoration, redemption, all meet in this room of estranged brothers. And then this betrayed Joseph comforts the betrayers. The betrayed is comforting the betrayers. The brothers are stunned. I mean, let's be honest, it's a lot to process. Imagine with me the fast cycle of emotions for these brothers, the guilt, the fear, the shock, the confusion, over and over guilt, fear, shock, confusion. What do we do? I imagine his brothers find it difficult to understand the nature of Joseph's tears. Are they tears of anger? What's going on? It just seems too unlikely that after all this time and everything they've been through the last couple months, and now they realize, wow, he was setting us up all those times. Humanly speaking, it's impossible to think these could be tears of joy and forgiveness. It's got to be pain and anger. Joseph sees their anxiety. He sees their fear. So he gives them the greatest gift they have ever received in their life. Forgiveness and comfort. He says, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. Joseph doesn't realize he's talking about keeping alive the descendants of Jesus. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He didn't know what God's plan was, but he knew God had a plan. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. That's an amazing story, isn't it? What about God? What's the spiritual application? I want to talk about a great ending. First, before I talk about this great ending, think about the hopeless alternative. <clears throat> In Hollywood, this would have had a different ending probably. Right? Joseph would have thrown them in jail, tortured them for a couple years, and then put them to death. How disappointing would it have been if Joseph had put his brothers into prison or slavery or even execution? I mean, the life of Joseph is nothing special if he does the natural thing. The human thing takes sweet justice into his own hands. And without our sovereign God working in Joseph, that is exactly what would have happened. How it would have ended was this alternative ending of revenge on these scoundrels. Joseph gets revenge, his family perishes, and we have no Jesus. No Holy Spirit, no grace life, no church family. But what happens is there is inspiration through restoration. Had Joseph made this about himself, as I said, there is no salvation for him, for his family, or for us. But what could have been a story of revenge 
and justice ends with the victim, get this, the victim as forgiver, reconciler, and comforter. Let that sink in for a minute. The victim is the forgiver, the reconciler, and the comforter. By grace, God has given Joseph the ability to see past Egypt into God's eternal plan. He doesn't know all the details. He just knows God is in charge. And after 25 years of dealing with this pain and betrayal, Joseph understands how God used it to save him, his family, and frankly, the whole civilized world. God had given Joseph eyes to see that the revenge he would have humanly wanted had no place in his plan of redemption and hope. And frankly, rarely does revenge have a place in redemption and hope. The supernatural gift of faith made Joseph desire restoration more than revenge. Here's the academic concept in Romans 8, 28 to 30. Look at this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Say, we know it. Right? That's like, well, we know 2 plus 2 is 4, but, but do, you, do you feel it? Do you feel 2 plus 2 is 4? Well, of course not. It's a math equation. When you read this, it's like math. We know that God loves us and all things work together for good that are called according to his purpose. Right? We know it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Yeah, we know it, but sometimes I don't feel it. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So many of you have read that passage many times. Maybe it's the first time you've heard it. It sounds great, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound great? All things work together for good. That's easy. Enough. I don't need revenge. Doesn't work that way, does it? But see, Joseph, this wasn't even written yet, but Joseph understood the concepts that even the evils of betrayal, listen to this, even the evils of betrayal in Egypt are slaves to the sovereign plan of God that he has for his children. In fact, his ordeal of betrayal had led Joseph to a deeper connection to his heavenly dad. Joseph understood that God wasn't just sovereign over Egypt. He was also sovereign over Joseph's own heart. Now, I'll get more into this knowing and applying thing in just a moment, but I wanted to give you a little feeder to keep that in mind. I read that verse to you, and I know it's not easy just to say, oh, all things work together for good. I don't need justice. I don't need revenge. Well, that's ridiculous. The human heart still wants it, but we're going to get to that in a moment. Let's talk about the personal application. What about us? What do we do? I want to talk about our redemption through betrayal. So because the sermon was written a couple weeks ago, there were two Sunday sermon previews on social media. So the first one was, being betrayed is often part of God's plan for redemption. It certainly was for Jesus. I mean, it doesn't make sense, humanly speaking, that betrayal might be a core ingredient to our means of survival our redemption in Egypt, does it? Like, do you want to survive in Egypt? Okay, you're going to have to be betrayed. No, can I just survive in Egypt without betrayal? No. In fact, betrayal and injustice 
They are, in fact, one of the hardest parts of surviving in Egypt. But they're also unavoidable. And our natural human response outside of the gift of faith, our natural human response to betrayal and injustice is victimhood. And what victimhood does is it justifies our desire for revenge. Not only our desire for revenge, because sometimes we can't have revenge, right? So what else does it justify? Our desire for bitterness. Unforgiveness. And then dreams about what justice would look like if we were in charge. We all know people who have put their hope in these things, don't we? In fact, all of us, all of you, me, have been a prisoner to this at one time or another. Maybe some of you are a prisoner to it today. Cutting off family members, abandoning friendships, hoping that one day our betrayers experience just a glimpse of the pain that they have caused us. That'll show them. I can't wait for the Patriots to go 2-14. and 14. <laughs> They know what it's like to be a Bucks fan then. <laughs> but you know, there's a greater example of betrayal than the story of Joseph or us. It's our big brother, Jesus. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, what, what have you come to do? Or do what you've come to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. You know, it's easy for us to get mad at Judah, isn't it? Think about it this way. Let me flip this around. Is it possible that you could be glad that Judah did that, or Judas did that? Without the betrayal, there's no suffering. Without the suffering, there's no cross. Without the cross, there's no death. Without the death, there is no resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation and conquering death and sin. Without that, there's no grace life. There's no gospel. There's no Bible. There's nothing. Betrayal was part of redemption. In fact, it was a crucial ingredient. And Jesus is the best example of that. What, Jesus, uh, what if Jesus had enacted justice as he was entitled to? Oh yeah, Judah, you're kissing me to bring these guys? Tell you what, boom, all of you are dead. He could have, certainly within his power. No, what Jesus does is he becomes the victim who offers comfort and forgiveness and restoration. Here's the other preview that I posted this week. Restoration will always be better than revenge. But listen, like I said earlier, being able to live by this principle is not a natural inclination. It really does take a supernatural gift of faith to trust God, not only with our salvation. Like We know that's easy, right? Yes, we know that for those of us that believe in the gospel, trusting God for salvation, that's the only way. But it also is supernatural to trust him with our conflicts, is it not? And our betrayals. Think of all the missed impact and blessing if we live our life ruled by revenge and self-imposed justice. But of course, like I said earlier, knowing this stuff isn't enough. 
And I wanted to figure out as a pastor, it's, no, it's easy to know it, but how do I get you to connect with it emotionally and spiritually in a strong enough way that creates action? that turns you from the victim into the comforter and the forgiver and the restorer. How do I get us to go away from the natural inclination to the thing that is better, which is restoration? Church, this is why we pray. The reason we have to pray is we have to understand it's asking God to help you trust the gift of faith that He has given you in the first place. This is how we personally connect with the supernatural gift of faith in a way that is not churchy or formal or servicey, but in a way that transforms us. Because trusting in God is not an academic mathematic process. It's a very personal process that goes to our very core in these two areas. The first thing is we have to understand, we have to trust God for the details. You know, it's ironic, right? There's a phrase, the devil is in the details. No. It's God that's in the details. God was in the details of Joseph's betrayal. He was in the details of Jesus' betrayal. Do you think God is surprised when we're betrayed? Oh, listen, Joe, listen, I know. Look, that caught me off guard, too. I did not know that they were going to do that to you. I'm sorry, uh, next time I'll watch better. <laughs> Didn't see that coming. Now what do we do, Joe? I'm not sure I can redeem you now. You've been betrayed. <laughs> Look at this in Isaiah. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Think about that. Pray about that. God, help me understand how your ways are higher than my ways. Joseph certainly realized that, didn't he? He said, for some reason, God sent me to Egypt so that we could preserve your descendants. He didn't know they were preserving his descendants for me, for you. But he knew that God had higher ways and higher thoughts. God, help me trust you specifically for the details. The details are out of my control. The details are frustrating me. The details are discouraging me. The details are painful. God, please help me trust you with those details. It is supernatural to be able to see that the suffering of betrayal and to see it in the big picture of God's plan for salvation. But then there's another thing we have to pray for. God, help me trust you for justice. Without faith, church, we are prisoners to our own passion for justice and revenge. We are prone to focus on what others deserve while turning a blind eye to the justice that we deserve. Oh, yeah, yeah I deserve that, but, but, but they, they really deserve it. Like when I cut somebody off, on 41, they should just forgive me and move on. When they cut me off, I'm going to catch up, find out what you're listening to, where you're on your phone, what are you doing. I'm going to make sure. Now, I won't flip them off. I'm beyond that now. I'm much more mature than that. But I will stare at them. My wife says, don't look. Don't look. It's true. I want to look. We live with cataracts that blind us to our own sin. You know what? When you live that way, it's a sign you're a child of Egypt, not a child of God. Did you hear what I just said? 
If you live with cataracts to your own sin, you're a child of Egypt, not a child of God. Look at this passage in Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil. Oh, come on. You got to go right there, Paul. Come on. Repay, repay some with half the evil they gave you. Can't we just go half? No. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Man. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You see, when God intervenes, we understand that none of us could survive the justice we deserve. When God has transformed your heart, given you eyes to see, you understand, if I really got what I deserved, I would not have a chance of surviving in Egypt. And what that does is, if we truly understand how bad our plight is, that causes us to turn our hope to God's sovereign hand for redemption, for reconciliation, and for restoration. And this miracle motivates us to desire restoration more than revenge. Paul says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, including betrayal, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. True children of God, ones that are on path to survive Egypt, will ultimately long for reconciliation and forgiveness over revenge. True children of God will desire to get out from under the thumb of bitterness and unforgiveness. Otherwise, you will perish in Egypt in the false hope of your own justice, in your own stupid, silly revenge. Our hope for survival in Egypt rests not on revenge, but stories that end in restoration, especially our very own. God's children will crave restoration because through humility we understand our need to be restored. And when we understand that need, it is then we can approach others who have betrayed us with clean hands and pure hearts and as victims become the comforters, the forgivers, the restorers. Heavenly Dad, this morning we recognize our natural instinct Take justice and revenge into our hands, even in small ways, ways that seem like would be harmless. But in the end, Father, you have instructed us to trust you for the details and trust you for justice. We pray that you would give us the humility, the gift of humility to help us understand just how much our own restoration is needed.